0: i'm charlie rossiter and this is poetry spoken here our feature today is christopher benson coming to us from south carolina now he retired from teaching at clemson u in south carolina and was also writing coordinator and editor for bread loaf teachers national magazine network magazine for the Breadloaf School of English at Middlebury College in Vermont, a very cool program. And so we're, and I, he came to us because our friend Alice Culhane of in Alaska suggested, hey, Charlie, this guy would be a good person to put on the podcast. So here we are, and I'm glad we could do it, Chris. Welcome to Poetry Spoken Here.
1: Thank you, Charlie. And I'll say to your audience, I am very delighted to be here with you and uh, this is something I've never done before. I'm not a, a big uh, advocate or proponent for writing poetry. I don't go around uh, uh, proselytizing it. So um, being on your show is a big deal for me.
0: And this, Yeah, it's interesting to me. Uh, I actually just believed Alice when she said you should be on the show. <laughs> so I didn't, know, I didn't know diddly about what your story is. And it's interesting. It's very interesting and a positive thing that you fall into the category of you're not real interested in publishing poetry, really. I mean, you aggressively you submit all the time and that kind of thing and have a bunch of books published. But at the same time, it's an important part of your life and you're serious about it, about that's writing true. your poems. That's and true. I think that's, um, yeah, have you, as a, been, like, all your adult life you've been writing?
1: I started when I was, uh, I think I was about 31 years old. And of course, you know, everybody tries when they're a teenager to write a poem. But uh, I didn't really pursue it until um, I met a poet. Her name was Claire Bateman. And um, people in Vermont will probably know her because she, um, she, she went to school at, at Vermont College. She got her MFA there. She ended up at Clemson, and uh, I just was uh, out on a picnic with her one day, and I said, hey, could you teach me to write a poem? Without any hesitation, she said, well, of course. In fact, I put that in the acknowledgments of my first book. I'll just read that to you right now, Um, the acknowledgments. The book is called Ashes at the End of Day. And the acknowledgments go, I'd like to thank Claire Baikner for her quick affirmative response years ago to my question, could you teach me to write a poem? She was also very generous with her encouragement to write. And then I go on to uh, mention uh, Dixie Goswami, um, a breadlove professor who always supported my writing. Uh, she, she loved my poems, but she um, really was interested in my technical writing to help her with grant writing. <laughs> And she and I worked together for about 20 years, I guess, all together, Dixie and I. But I I credit Claire with uh, her quick affirmative response. She hadn't done that, probably never would have uh, got into it as much as I did. In fact, I was a a lecturer at Clemson at the time, as was Claire. And so I was on the curriculum committee and uh, knowing how the committee worked, I ramrodded a uh, independent study proposal through the curriculum committee with Claire, as my teacher, one lecturer teaching another lecturer. Uh, Pretty, I think that was an unusual setup, but um, I heard some uh, crabbing in the department after I did that, that I had ramrodded. That's, that was the word I heard. But um, thank God I did because uh, Claire, Claire did have one stipulation. She said, get one more person and I'll do it. So I, uh, Conscripted my friend Nancy, who was a, a published writer, and uh, didn't really need the course, but she took it with me, and uh, that was the beginning of it. And I think I wrote about ten poems uh, within the course of that semester-long uh, yeah. course I took. And I just kept on going, about you know three, four poems a year. I mean, I'm not, I don't have great output, but I keep after it. And I'm, uh, the reason I don't have great output is I never know when a poem is finished. And uh, I tinker with it forever. And I think they get better. Uh, I used to wonder if they, in a, in a revision process that takes literally years, uh, if they got worse. But um, I think they get better. And uh, But it's hard to quit messing with them and just, you know, say you know, they're done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's very cool. And it's also interesting how just an incident like that, one person, and you happen to ask yeah and just totally serendipitous really makes a giant difference and of course independent study is the way to go it was always my favorite class in college (laughs) that's why grad school was better it got more independent you know absolutely yeah so hey and uh well you you mentioned before we started that um you find some poems sometimes and as i told you haven't really chatted about found poetry uh, on the podcast so Uh, You want to tell me a little bit about your deal with found Poetry? I want to look at the poem
1: and then tell you how I found it. I believe I was in a hospital, uh, maybe visiting someone or coming out of a doctor's appointment. And I was just killing some time waiting, as you always have to do in a situation like that. And I saw this uh, posted thing on a bulletin board. And the the title was all in capital, bold letters effective this day of notice and I started reading it and it was um one of these pieces that um, is just a communication that is supposed to um, cover its own ass if you know what I mean by that I mean um, if as long as this thing gets posted whoever um, creates some kind of difficult situation regarding the topic, um, they're covered. They don't have to worry. They're not at fault. And I started reading it, and I could not really even make out what it was about. Something about um, a termination, some things that had to be submitted on time. I don't even recall now what it was about. And this poem has um, really evolved so that the content of it probably doesn't resemble the content of that actual notice. Gotcha. I'll go ahead and read it. It's, it's about 25 lines long. Great. One of my shorter ones. It has some lines that are in capital letters and some words, and I will uh, emphasize those with my voice just so you can know. Effective this day of notice. Due to current circumstances and the need for increased security, the agency has enacted the immediate suspension of your status within the agency a review of your file is ongoing and an evaluation is pending be assured that the agency will maintain proper records of your case as required to certify accuracy of records an auditor has been appointed to your case non-disclosure of his or her identity guarantees impartiality in his or her findings relevant to your status. Outcomes of your audit may include but are not limited to the following number one, change of status, two, declaration of liability, three, detainment, four, termination. We guarantee our commitment to your case.
0: The end. <laughs> Whoa. That's a very big brother sounding. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because that's kind of what I was going for. Yeah. Uh, something's uh, ominous is happening, but we don't really know what or why.
0: <laughs> that gives you a touch of Kafka in the background. <laughs> <laughs> something's happening and you don't know what it is. Oh my God. Whoa, that's pretty interesting. All right. Do you, do you frequently find poems or is that just you happen to find it? Really, finding
1: occasion to write it. Um, or the occasion that inspires it. Yeah. Probably is, is more, more common of course. Uh, yeah. And knowing, knowing when to remember something. Um, most of my poems are a narrative. That one was not, of course, mm-hmm. but most of them are and um, they exist because I remember to, to, think about it some more and try to transfer it in some way to some other kind of story and never, yeah. uh, I think uh, Emily Dickinson said, "Tell the truth, but tell it slant." Is that correct?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So I like that. Um, yeah, that encouragement, and uh, I pretty much that's the genesis for my narrative poems. I yeah. try to trans—I call it transference. I don't know if that's an actual poetic term or not, but for me, it refers to um, taking my experience and putting transferring another person into it, mm-hmm. uh, or. Um, maybe transferring other people into it. uh, If I'm in it, just um, alter it somehow so that you're not just reporting what happens and you can imagine emotional impact rather than just rely on what emotions were generated in reality. I'm a pretty laid back person. Nothing ruffles me too much. And if it does, I tend to suppress it, you know, but, um, so I have to go looking for uh, things that might have emotional charge to them, and that's yeah. I get that from transferring uh, action.
0: Yeah, people ask me um, for any idea about like how do you how do you get started on writing a poem? I related to what you said a few minutes ago. Is well, you notice something, and then you notice that you noticed. Yeah, and yeah. then you go, oh, why, why? Why do I care about that? Why does my brain like notice that? And there's where you're going to maybe turn that into a poem, or at least it's a start. It may not work out, but it mo- it'll be motivating, and you'll want to try to write about it.
1: I, I carry a little uh, notebook that I can keep in my breast pocket, and a lot of times I find myself writing, just jotting down yeah. something. It's just an idea. A lot, I know a lot of people do this, and I'm a, I'm a, I am used to be a big Kerouac fan, and I always looked for photos of him to see if he had the little um those little notebooks yeah often did if you got oh, he, that you really use them
0: they're they're in the new york public library i have held them in my hand oh, a really? few of them wow. they're in the special collection you got to go through about three different checkpoints to get there and you claim have you have clothes? a and claim you have a research actually no claim you have a research project and oh, whatever okay. and tell them what it is and they will let you open this box and was amazing it was really interesting and they are little bitty those little bitty ones you know <laughs> yeah
1: that's what i prefer too okay uh, they're easy to easy to just put in your pocket
0: yeah well let's hear another poem of any sort you like from yeah. any source you like whatever you want to do
1: here's um i was telling you before the we started the interview that i um I was familiar with um Cobleskill, new york and i i lived on a farm in uh middle granville new york which is about 10 miles west of pulteney you know pulteney so it's a, it's a little town in vermont mm-hmm. i think there's actually a college there yeah and i was in my early 20s at this time and um one of my college friends uh, we went to an ag and tech college and one of he invited me and my girlfriend to come live there with alice the woman mm-hmm. who uh, um suggested you interview me and uh we ran a dairy farm together for a year, and uh, of course, uh, you know, dairy farmers get up at 5, 5.30, and in the summer, you often work till it's dark. It's a long day, and we were young. We wanted to party, but we couldn't really party like we wanted to because it was too hard to get up. But every once in a while, we'd go to town and uh, just go into one of these little, I don't know what you'd call them, just taverns where older older people went. We were in our early 20s. And the next morning, we'd pay for it. One morning, I came home at about 3 in the morning. And instead of going to bed and then getting up in two hours, I went ahead and fed the cows in the barn before I went to bed. And, of course, my friend was really pissed at me because... You don't want to upset the cow's schedule like that. Anyway, that, was, um, that kind of situation generated this poem. It's a short poem, about 20 lines as well. And it's called, After a Night Out. And it, it kind of captures one, one night when the three or four of us who live together in this sort of dairy farm commune uh, to go out and drink and then come home and try to get to bed. We were coming home probably around Two in the morning on on this night, one or two in the morning. After a night out is the title. This winter morning in the early hours after a binge on the town where I've hunkered over slate topped bars playing cribbage for shots and bullshitting about the general decline of the dairy farmer and the world. I come back late to the farm red eyed puny and pukish. Staggering as I watch the silos tilt and swing. Leaning on the hood of the pickup, I watch my brothers slip and tumble up the icy path to the house. Still whooping it up and waking the old lady. A light pops on in her upstairs room as the screen door slaps the house awake. I stay a few minutes listening to the night stillness. A cold breath of wind sweeps down the back pasture where frozen grass lies patiently under the snow. The highest feathered branches of the hemlocks towering over the house wave silently in the dark. So that's just a snapshot of uh, coming home to the farm late at night, a yeah. little bit tight. And uh, the quiet... and pukish. And the- yeah, yeah. <laughs> many, many nights were like that back in the day. I was... Wanting to read you um, another farm poem. And um, I guess I'll just say, you know, my intros tend to be way longer than my poems themselves. But um, this, um, as I say, my friend Rick invited us to, uh, to come help him make this transition where he could acquire this farm. And we'd all have land and we'd have a commune. And we were so young and we all fought like that. So that's what we were hoping for. But of course the year went by and nothing really changed. We worked every day without a day off. And so at the end, you know, this would have been about 8 years later, I wrote this poem. And it's really about failure rather than those early mm-hmm. uh Halcyon days. And it's just called One Day on the Farm. It has kind of a bitter ending to it, sad ending. And uh I named it One Day on the Farm because You know, one day is just like any day, any other day. Mm -hmm. And even though this day was not like any other day, it kind of stands for the entire farm uh, episode. Yes. Okay. So uh, one day on the farm, Norm told me, whoop the back pasture up the ridge. There's some heifers up there ready to drop, chase them down to the barn and stanching them up. Bring Paca to help you herd. Paca's the dog. Paca happily took the charge. Underworked shepherd dog, she'd no use for lying around. I whistled and she knew some fun was up. She loped to my side and we began our highland climb. A boy and his dog, we were a rustic pair. I thought myself lucky even to escape for an afternoon, the chaotic farm, it's listing barn and the chores running over my life like a filthy tide. Halfway up the steep pastures, I turned and smiled on the world. A little box house, a black dirt barnyard, the silo tilting at the sun. Chasing cows this afternoon, what better way to earn a dollar? Near the top, I found the heifers clustered near a shaded late patch of rye, made wild, almost like deer by dark winter with nothing but hay we brought once in a while to keep them from starving. I walked to the edge of the wood behind them. Go on, get! Down we went. I slapped the rump of a red Holstein stopping to munch her cud. A solid black heifer lagged behind the others. She walked stiffly, her legs like toothpicks. Stumbling, bellering. Her tail was hiked up and something, what is that? Black stuck out of, she having a calf? That nasty place under her tail, it's already dead. The calf's head, like a black demon with eyes shut tight and ears pinned back, stuck a purple tongue out at the world. Later, Doc Strawberry came to the barn to see what he could do. How to get a dead calf out of a cow. The calf had been dead for two days, Doc said, had swole up, already decaying and poisoning its mother. Norm stood behind the heifer with his shotgun and Custer. But Doc was skilled and wanted to save her. He'd known uglier situations, but not many. Drowned horse in a well, an entire herd of Ayrshire buried with anthrax in a bunker. And what about the farmer in Lawyersville who lived with a pig? Doc Strawberry had seen just about everything. I watched Doc go to work. Sharp stainless knives drawn from a strong oak box, a calf's head rolled in the gutter later transported to the shit wagon, flailed out in a fi- on a field to rot in the sun.
0: Whoa, it gets you back to basics. You can <laughs> say that, you know? But that's one thing about poetry is it so vividly can tell you about something that you've never experienced that, uh, you know, I have never experienced that your listeners have never experienced. That's, yeah. yeah. Funny Whoa. thing
1: is, I don't know really why I started to write about that. Um, I might have started with the uh the idea that the farm was a failure in my head, I think probably I did, and that experience yeah. was kind of you know there were a lot of small failures, but that one really did kind of capture it yeah. and uh, but the funny thing is, I started with this kind of naive notion in the beginning you know of the voice uh, of the the speaker, uh, which was how things felt at the beginning of you know, our year on the farm. Mm-hmm the world is bright and leading to new things
0: yeah you got a nice yeah you got a parallel there for sure uh,
1: i'm not going to read this other poem but just as a tag to those two poems um there's one called uh while loading hay which is about norm uh,
0: mm-hmm. one time
1: we uh we were baling hay in the old style bales you know the ones you could pick up and the baler was shooting the uh bales, which were heavier than they should have been because they were slightly wet, that's another small uh-huh. Uh into a, a wagon, and it was on a steep hillside. So as the bales were tossed into the wagon, they're all piling on the downhill side. And Rick and I were standing about 100 yards behind Norm, who was on the tractor pulling the machinery. And we, he said to me, Does, is that trailer tipping over? Because it would tip, but then the tunnel uh-huh.
0: Let it come back. Well, let me ask you: Is this in the poem? Because if it is, why don't you read the poem? Okay, because I'll read we the poem. we just have time for one more poem. So what? Okay, this I'll is, read the poem. That'd be cool. Yeah, tell the story that way. Great.
1: But, but I think it needed a setup. Just okay. uh, Another failure while loading hay, and it's got a kind of happy ending to it, even though it's it's a failure. It's an absurd failure. <laughs> uh, nothing dies. Me and the boss man stood on a steep hill among raked rows of green alfalfa, cupped and barely dry. We watched Norm atop Big Blue, the Ford 7700 pulling a baler that tossed 60-pound bales into a tall wagon, trailing obediently like a mule. The trailer droned, pushing the PTO at its guaranteed speed. The baler worked for once as engineered, clacked and grunted, binding and twining away. Every 50 seconds, a bale into the wagon. On this hill, a 20% slope, the bundled hay drifted on the wagon's downhill side, pulling itself in a jostling bank of interlocking bales. We were waiting for Norm to get a load up, then ride the wagon back to the ancient barn where we unloaded, slowly filling up the cavernous loft, bale by bale, crowding out the magic columns of light where dust devils danced in early spring, right up to the rafters. We squinted into the sun, blind to all, but the silhouetted caravan behind North. That wagon's full. Yeah, look how it's piling all on one side. The left rear wheel of the wagon lifted off the ground momentarily, like a dog peeing on the run, then lowered again and brushed the firm earth. Is that wagon tipping? The wheel rose again. The wagon was too far to run. The air was too thick with noise to shout. The wheel lifted up a third time, just as Norm looked back and wondered, is that wagon tipping? Another bale arced back and landed atop the convulsing mountain of hay. The left side of the wagon reached up, climbing on liquid air. It's gonna tip. Oh shit. Before Norm could throw in the clutch, the wagon rose higher, rode a bit higher still until the wagon tongue squealed, surrendered its tempered factory lines and twisted like taffy. The wagon rolled over, crashed, and shuddered on the ground, having a fit, puking its load at the edge of the woods below. Norm was sheepish. The boss man was pissed. I was laughing. It looked like rain, so there was nothing to do but get at the other wagon and begin loading again. We got them, all but one. I found it next spring, 20 feet deep in the woods, where it had turned to compost. <laughs> That was fun remembering that as I read <laughs> uh,
0: Yeah, I get that pleasure out of reading my own poems also, <laughs> remembering the experience.
1: But uh, uh, like I say, that's those are true experiences. I didn't have to find those experiences or even right. uh, transfer much into it, uh, you know, uh, yeah. in terms of emotion. That's pretty much the way it went down.
0: Great. Right. All right. Well, this has been really good. Thanks a whole lot for doing this, uh, reading your poems and just talking about everything. Uh, It's been wonderful. Glad you could do it. It's been my
1: pleasure, and I thank you
0: from the bottom of my heart. All right, folks, I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today, from South Carolina, Christopher Benson, who I forgot to ask if he prefers Chris, Well, just be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to Let Poetry Speak to You. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere.